we've been talking about um, the truth of the kingdom. That in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, where he rules and has established his presence, we can live with a deep sense of, of, of new life and understanding. We're in a series, and we've been looking at these accounts of Matthew and, and Jesus' healing ministry. And we've been looking at stories to find out what we can learn about how God heals today. And my hope has been that as, our, as we look at these stories, our faith will be challenged and will be stretched to recognize that even today, Jesus still is involved in, in bringing healing in all different ways to people's lives, even physically. And I'm really grateful. I've had a number of people who have emailed me or given me stories, and I'm grateful for those because it's been encouraging to just see how God's been at work within our own body. What I'd like you to do for just a moment is I'd, I'd like for everyone just to stand up for a second, okay? If you just stand, get your feet, get your bearings, um, because I want you to close your eyes. And while your eyes are closed with no one looking around at all, okay? I want you to point wherever you think north is, okay? Go ahead, take a moment and just point to where you think north is. Eyes closed. Okay, keep your hands up, still pointing. Now I want you to open your eyes and look around the room. Okay, right? You've got some people pointing like this all over the place. I don't think that's fair. Okay, you, you can be seated. So those of you who are wondering where north really is, I have to tell you, I um, had asked for a compass. So I, I, I had a compass and I actually know exactly where north is. North is exactly that direction. Ah, I see some of you are going, whoa. Well, here's the point. Sometimes our feelings are not accurate gauges of directional reality. Sometimes our feelings are not accurate gauges of directional reality. There are some people who, when they are driving, insist on following only their feelings, only relying on their gut sense of direction, you know, playing um, hunches and intuition. In fact, they'll get so stubborn with it that they'll actually rather get lost than humble themselves and ask for directions. Right? And we call these people, that's good, men, <laughs> father, husband, you know, boyfriend, any of those will do. I love Jesus' courage. Because Jesus was constantly, through his life, pointing to true north. Whether it was declaring the truths of the kingdom, or whether it was demonstrating the reality of the kingdom in his life. As we've been looking at this the past few weeks, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, and then again, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, summarizes in this account of Matthew. He has this section where he, he bookends it with 4.23 and 9.35, and he characterizes the ministry of Jesus with this statement. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, pointing true north. And he did that in chapters 5 through 7 on the Sermon on the Mount. And then what struck my attention was chapters 8 through 9. He continued to point true north by demonstrating the reality of his kingdom by the way that he actually lived. And there's an account of 8 through 9 where you see the healing ministries of Jesus. Three healing ministries and then a call to follow. Three healing ministries and a call to follow. Three healing ministries. And then he says in chapter 9 again, here's the characteristic of the kingdom. And then Jesus says, now go and do the same. Point true north. At the end of that little part in chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus looks around and he looks at all kinds of people. And he says they're helpless, they're harassed like sheep without a shepherd. 
He said there's a whole group of people that live near you, around you, and, and they're at work with you, and they're, they're people that are somewhat close to you or that you rub shoulders with, and they're looking for true north. And he says then to these disciples, ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers. And then he looks at them and he says, go. Declare the kingdom, teach the kingdom, live out the kingdom, even in this realm of bringing healing power to people. And so as we look at this passage of Scripture, being a follower of Jesus means that when he points to a reality through his teaching or through his life and he says, do this, demonstrate this, declare this, walk in this. We actually do what he says and live out the direction he tells us to go. And so there is this harvest of people. And so what we're going to look at in Matthew is how is it that God heals and, and what is Jesus trying to teach us? What is Matthew trying to teach us through these passages of Scripture? We looked at last week, the very first healing that we saw in this account through eight through nine is the healing of a leper. And the question that basically comes up is this question. I know you have ability, but are you willing? It's the willingness of God, the willingness of God in any situation to say, I have compassion. I love you. My heart is for you. This week, we look at a centurion. And how important faith is in healing. This last Wednesday, we gather on Wednesdays, um, the first Wednesday of the month. And one of the things that we do, and I encourage you, if you're not a part of this, at 6 noon or 6, when you, when you look at the first Wednesday of the month, we try to come together as a church and we say, God, we are so dependent on you to point us true north. We are so dependent on you for you to demonstrate true north in our life. Would you do this in us? Create us as these kind of followers. And so what I want us to look at is, is what does it mean for us as I asked this group when we were praying to develop a culture of faith? What does that look like? And I think this story is one that Jesus puts that Matthew allows for us to read. Where Jesus says, all you claim to have faith, but here, folks, is real faith. If you're looking for true north as it relates to faith, uh, head this way. Let's look at Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. It says that when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I tell this one go and he goes and that one come. And he comes, I say to this servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, when he took it in, he was astonished. And he said to those following him, he looked at those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And I say to you. That many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects or the sons of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus looked at the centurion. Go, it would be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Let's pray. Father. 
My prayer has been, our prayer has been this last Wednesday, that you would begin to develop within us a culture of faith. Thank you for the faith we already have. But God, may we be able to be like the centurion and be able to see you do things for people's lives that, that they can't do on their own. That you would use the medical resources, you would use the people who have been gifts around us, all these things together, which are by your grace, to bring healing into our lives, whether it's relational, physically, in any way, God. We pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let's dig into the story. Matthew writes, when Jesus entered Capernaum, Capernaum was a city on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful spot location. I had an opportunity to be there. It no longer exists. Um, Jesus cursed it, it says in Scripture. And, and today, even to this day, even though it's as beautiful as it is, there's nothing built there. There's a bunch of ruins that they're digging up. Jesus spent a lot of time there because it was um, a place of, of great ministry. It was a major trade route. In fact, the people from the north, from like Assyria and Babylon, if they wanted to do work and trade into the areas of Cush or into Egypt, into those areas of um, they would have to go through this route, which would take them by the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee was a perfect place to have a tax kind of booth, shelter. You know, uh, you would come through there and you would be taxed. And, and as a result of that and the income and, and the fact that there, you know, people don't like taxation, correct? How many here love it? How many? We understand it. it it's helpful for us, obviously, to create some of the things we want. But... They didn't like the taxation stuff. So in that city, they also had a military outpost. It was a garrison city. Herod, who oversees, was a tetrarch of of that one quarter of area called Galilee and Perea. He had the authority to levy troops that were not necessarily Roman in their background, but they were Roman soldiers. He would take these outsiders and bring them into this place. And in this place, there would be also a military outpost. And in that military outpost, there would be centurions. So Matthew continues, the centurion came to Jesus in the city of Capernaum. We're not told a thing about the man's name. We're just told it's a centurion. Centurions were company commanders of the Roman legion. And if you think of century or the word cent, cent is one one hundredth of a dollar, right? We talk about one one hundredth. Or you think of century, one hundred years. A centurion was one who was responsible for a hundred men. And these centurions were really the military backbone of the whole Roman Empire. They were the ones who maintained discipline and they exercised um, orders. They were usually rough and tough, experienced soldiers. They didn't get their positions from holding a desk job. They're like our sergeants. And these are the centurions, and this is what this man was. He was probably a pagan, an outsider. And most of those outsider Roman soldiers despised the Jews because of how the Jews hated them. But this guy was different. We're told in Luke that he, he actually, he, he, he somehow was a God-fearer and, and even invested in, in, the, in the, the faith of the Jews. And he, he actually gave money to build the synagogue. And in that place, I said, where it's desolate today, there is work that has been done and there is a remains of a first century synagogue which has the foundations that, that it's possible that this centurion maybe actually purchased so they could build it. Anyway, Matthew continues. The centurion came to Jesus in, in catch these words, asking for help. Someone you wouldn't expect. 
He somehow must have known about Jesus. He must have heard stories about Jesus. He must have heard about a leper who had been cleansed. He must have heard about epileptics who had been cured. He must have heard about the fact that there were blind who had received sight. He must have come to an understanding that there was a deaf mute that was walking around the town, blabbing his mouth off and listening to people. And he must have understood something being a centurion, one who was over a hundred, since he understood authority. He must have understood that this person had unusual authority because he had this ability to speak a word. And when he would speak the word, it would actually create what was supposed to happen. And so he must have been impressed. One of the things that Matthew um, teaches us as we go through this passage of Scripture it seems that it's centurions and lepers and those who are on the outside who don't seem to really be on the inside have a much easier time with coming to Jesus for who he is and seeking him for his power and for his healing and, and exercising faith in, in the fact that he could do something. Which forces a question on me. Does our familiarity, does your familiarity, if you've grown up to church, if you've heard the word of God over and over again, does our actual closeness to that sometimes cause us to not have the same kind of faith? Is it really just in mission fields because people have never heard about them that somehow God has to demonstrate his power there? Or could it be our familiarity, our closeness limits what God wants to do even in our own midst? Does our theology, our presuppositions get in the way of seeing Jesus the way He might want to work in our life. And I'm not saying that we're on this other end where we try and conjure faith in order to control God so that we put God once again in a box, nor do I want us to be on this other side. I want us to really think through this, and so I'm going to challenge you. You're going to feel maybe at times out on the edge, but I'm going to ask you to be a little bit risky and begin to think of this. Does our control sometimes of God, where we sometimes just settle and we just say, well, this is the way it is, this is the way God's allowed it, does our control here, where we don't want to somehow be disappointed in God or we don't want to actually mar His image, Keep us from seeing God work. Matthew is interesting because he records that the centurion said, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed in terrible suffering. Which is really interesting. He doesn't come to him with a demand. He just makes a statement. That's what's going on. Lord, he doesn't put him in a box. Here's what's up. I'm coming to you for help. May Jesus have an answer that we need to, when we come to this, not only do we seek medical means, but we understand the fact that we come to Jesus. Because, folks, there are medical means that that actually heal, that sometimes even though they may just help with symptoms, there may be spiritual roots and causes and things that are deeper. It could be a bitter spirit, an unforgiving spirit. It could be a wound that's occurred in your life. It could be a number of other things that may be a little more complex than just it's a medical thing or it's a faith kind of healing. But God's involved in this in a way that all that God does from the medical to the fact of a faith that's immediate is still the work of God. And we bring all that before him and we come to him for help so that a culture of faith is proactive And we turn to Jesus and we recognize that we just say, here it is, God. And we don't put him in a box. We wait and we ask. Now, note the circumstances. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Luke says it this way. He entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus. It's really interesting. What you have here is a person who's at the end of his, his rope. He's, he's at the end of his own ability to do whatever needs to be done. He's at his wit's end, so to speak. 
And one of the things we find about a culture of faith, it's a, it's a culture of total dependency that sometimes arises out of a sense of desperateness. The leper who couldn't cure himself, didn't know what to do, throws himself at the feet of Jesus, knows that he shouldn't really be doing this because he will make this rabbi unclean, but he doesn't care out of boldness. He just falls before him and says, I need your help. There is a sense that God uses even our own desperation to bring us to a point of dependency where we recognize Jesus, we call upon you. Give us wisdom, give us strength as we walk with you. What I think is interesting is everywhere Jesus goes, people seem to be falling on their knees in front of him. Pleading. As I was thinking about that, I don't think it's because Jesus is gets a thrill out of people begging. I think what we see here is it's usually people in those kind of conditions, in that kind of situation, that recognizes they need God's control. Anybody, anybody messed up your life by trying to control your life? I just this 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 whole idea of this total dependency, this culture of faith that's proactively coming before Jesus and listening and saying, Jesus, what do you say to me about this? This culture of faith that also comes before him out of a sense of desperation, saying I'm totally dependent on you, is this sense of walking in a place where we're not in control, where we say, God, you're the one who's sovereign and understands. But you are coming to you because you tell us that we're to bring heaven to earth. And there are situations where you're going to actually implement through your power and through your authority the work you want to be done. And so I remember many times in my life, I can think of some specifically within church ministry, where my control, my desire to try and make something happen, blew it. Until God taught me, and something I've said many times around here, and you've heard it. And I've challenged this this way, I've challenged myself. When will I get sick and tired of trying to do in my own strength what only can be done in God's strength? Look at Jesus' response to the centurion's desperate need. There appears to be no hesitation. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. Now, there's some difficulty around this story, and I need you to be aware of this, because if you look at another account in Luke, you'll see some of this. Matthew records this as if the centurion himself went to Jesus. And I think there's a reason for this. I think he's trying to show us this whole idea of authority and representation. And so he bypasses some, some things that Luke would talk about. Luke tells us that the centurion didn't actually go to Jesus, but he sent some Jewish people with this message. So Jesus doesn't even interact with the centurion, but through these Jewish people who have come to him. And the centurion doesn't um, come himself, but rather he sends these Jewish people because he doesn't feel worthy to come into the presence of this rabbi, this teacher. In fact, he was felt so unworthy, he didn't even feel like this teacher should come into his home. So he sends these Jews on his behalf and they speak to Jesus for him. This perfect example of a person who has authority, who sends representatives, because it really doesn't matter if you send the representative, if they're speaking your word, it's as if it's spoken from this person. So Luke writes, the centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of, Ju- the, of the Jews to him, asking him to come and to heal a servant. Luke continues, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with Jesus. It would seem that, that Jesus, as these people pleaded, with him, please, you've got to come. This guy's been so incredible. He's, it, it tells us that, um, where is it? Luke says this, the centurion um, when, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. And the man, they said, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation. He's built our synagogue. He, he so deserves it. Here's this guy saying, I don't deserve it at all. And these guys are saying, Jews, 
this is a healing. It deserves something. And here is, is, is Jesus responding and says, I'll go and heal them. I'm going to his house. So on his way to the house, I think this is what I believe happens. These servants are excited. Some of them maybe continue to walk with Jesus to show him the way. The other one runs home to tell the, the centurion, guess what? Jesus is coming. And the centurion then gives orders again with authority. He says, man, he can't come here. I'm a Gentile. I don't want him coming in. This, that'll make him dirty. And if, if this, and my son, this servant of mine is so close to dying, and if he dies, he'll be, you know, the illness. Who knows? He'll be unclean. All these rules that the Jews have. I don't deserve this at all. I'm just a pagan outsider. Would you go and tell him not to come to my house? I don't deserve it. But just say the word, and I believe he'll be healed. And so they run back, and they say that. Which really helps to explain what Luke writes when he states that Jesus was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not consider myself worthy to come to you. When I think about a culture of faith, one of the things you see in this story is this sense of total humility that doesn't demand it doesn't, it, it doesn't come saying, you know, God, I've been serving you for the last five, ten years. Or, God, you know I've been doing this for 30 years, so I deserve this. It's this incredible sense of humility. So a culture of faith is proactively comes with their, their, their situation before Jesus. And as they come before Jesus, they come with this, this deep sense of, of dependency that expresses itself in total humility. So you see in verse 9, he says, just say the word and my servant will be healed. And he makes this incredible statement, for I myself am a man of authority with soldiers under me. I tell one go and he goes and that one to come and he comes and I tell this one to do this and he does it. See, Jesus, the representative say he understands authority. And here's Jesus's response. He's just to me. He goes, hey, yeah, um. In fact, let me, before, before you do, just, I just wanted to catch the full impact of what this, this centurion is doing. He says, I understand your authority, Jesus. There might be some around here saying, where would you get your authority? Who do you think you are? By what rhyme or reason do you speak this way? But you need to know, I understand this whole sense of authority. I've seen what you've done. Now catch this. The centurion is arguing from the least to the greatest when he says this. I am a man who's under authority and I understand authority. I exercise it. How much more authority must you have? You who are not under any authority at all. But are the supreme authority of the universe. Here I am under authority and I can command things to happen here. You are above all authority how much more all you need to do is speak it, and I believe it will be. And the next verse is so interesting, because when Jesus heard this, listen to what it says. He was astonished. The idea here is that he's, he's not just impressed. He was literally amazed at the faith of this Gentile. He was surprised, taken back, literally overwhelmed and shocked. With amazement. And so you've got to ask yourself, what kind of faith catches Jesus' attention like that? 
What do you think it is? It's simply he believed who Jesus said he was. He believed that just like the Father, just like he in authority could say things and representatives would go and do it, it was as if he himself did it. He realized that this Jesus was actually the very representative. When the Father was speaking and doing it, and and all that was happening was happening in direct relationship, he knew that the God of the universe was standing there speaking forth the things that needed to happen. And he looks around, he's so amazed, and he says to the people who were around him, who had grown up with the promises, they were the inheritors of all the commands and all the law of God and all these people who had been prepared for years and years who were so close to the book, so close to this God, the Yahweh, that as they were so close to Him, they who should have faith, He looks amazed and goes, why don't you have it? There's one other point in Scripture where Jesus is amazed at people's faith. There's one other time where Jesus is just goes, Whoa! I can't believe this faith. Listen to what Mark writes in chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. After he visits his, his hometown in Nazareth, Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. And then Mark makes this comment. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed, shocked, overwhelmed, astonished at their lack of faith. Those who should have faith. And I've been forced to wonder, in my own life, in the collective community of God that is so close to God and so proclaims this God and has so been inherited so much, do we sometimes stand like those very ones that Jesus looked at and there are those outside who for the first time hear and they just believe? And just ask us to think about that as a community. Because in my heart... I'm not, again, trying to put God in a box to do anything. I just want to open up the door. Could it be that our collective lack of faith due to our own familiarity and our own presuppositions actually limit God from doing things that he might want to do in our midst? And I don't say that because I'm not, there are people here who, all of us have experienced illness, so I'm not putting guilt trips on anybody at all. I'm just asking us to really think bigger, to open the door up a little bit. Could it be that Jesus could actually be speaking to his church? Because a culture of faith, it's not only one that proactively comes to Jesus and listens and says, Jesus, what is it you want in this situation? It's not only one that, that, that comes with a sense of total dependency out of the desperation, recognizing that, that our control is going to mess things up, but we need God in this, and that we also come with this sense of humility. We also come and we just trust and obey. We say, Jesus, if you say this, then, then we trust that you are the Father in heaven is saying this to our heart. And when he heard this, he was astonished and said to them, I tell you the truth, I haven't found anyone with such great faith. And I I left out purposely two words. Because this is the real kicker. I mean, Jesus, when he says, I tell you, I haven't found anyone with such great faith, puts the knife in to the people who were close to God through their traditions and their church upbringing. And then he turns it and he says, in Israel. 
And he could have just said, I haven't found anyone. But he turns it purposely and says, in Israel, where I should have expected it. Where I should have had people who could go, you could do this if you said it. And then he just, the real killer is this, verse 11. It's as if he looks at, it could be that he could say, because I say to you that many will come from the east and west. He's talking about the Gentiles that will be coming in, the pagans, and they will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he talks about the Jewish roots here in the kingdom of heaven, but the subjects, the sons of the kingdom, there will actually be sons of the kingdom, people who think they're in, who will be out. They will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The idea of weeping is this sense of suffering. Gnashing of teeth is this deep sense of just internal eternal frustration. And he's actually saying to these, these people who all felt because they were either by, by their own physical birth or because they've grown up in the community of faith or because they've maybe even made some confessions of faith, but their heart hasn't ever really trusted and believed and thrown themselves in complete um, desperate, Jesus, I need you to save me in every way, not just my sins, but in every thought, every way that I live my life, I am going to commit myself to radically following you. And so that when you make this first step, you then allow the kingdom of God to come into your life. The heaven of, of heaven begins to enter your spirit through the Holy Spirit. And you begin to walk step by step more fully every day into the heavenly kingdom as you draw heaven into yourself. So someday when you die or when Jesus comes again, you actually walk into heaven. But it is possible, he says, there are people within the kingdom. There are people sitting in these pews, possibly, who have never, they may be have said something, but they've never thrown their heart, their whole life onto Jesus Christ because he's the only one who can save. He's the only hope. But they it's possible, says Jesus, that you are walking in this direction and you are headed for a place where you will know outer, outer darkness and you will be in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it is a place called hell. It's a disturbing message. And only our own hearts can answer it. And then Jesus, after this shocking word, says to the centurion, go. So he says it to the representatives. It will be done just as you believed it would. So you have this incredible interplay again of this authority representative. He says to him, the representatives hear the word. When they hear the word, at that very word when Jesus said it, back home with the centurion is he sees his servant get better. He sees the paralysis leave. He sees this person become whole. And these servants run and they say, he doesn't need to come. Guess what? He's going to heal them. And they get there and they found him healed. Because at that very hour, at that time of belief, the moment you believe the word of God, the word of God has the power to recreate you, to give you faith, to, to move into your life, to give you his very presence. And it wasn't because of his faith or in the proportion to his faith, says Jesus, but the content of his faith. Just as you believed, it will be done. If you are in a place and you experience the guilt and you feel the shame of your own sin and you call upon Jesus and you say, Jesus, would you forgive me with the, the thing you did on the cross? Would you do it? The very content of that trust that you believe what he's done has given you salvation. There are times in your life when you need to understand that when Jesus comes to you and you're in the midst of a time where you're saying, I, I've lost a job, I don't know where I'm headed, and you, and you read in God's word, he says, I have a plan for you, I have a hope for you, I have a future for you. And he speaks that word to your heart. The moment you believe the content of the truth, it is yours. He, he promises a plan for your life. You do have a future. He won't lie to you. And it's no different when it comes to healing. If you're calling out to God, and if God speaks to your heart, and truly, He speaks to your heart, and He gives you a word and a promise, you can count on it being done. 
This isn't conjuring up faith. This is listening to the Word of God, allowing the Spirit of God to speak to our hearts, and allowing the Spirit of God to do incredibly miraculous, powerful things in the lives of people who say, I am so hungry, desperate for you more than anything else. So, I got an email this week from uh, Mike Allard here in the church. And I asked him if I could read it, and he said I could. He says, Dear Kevin, thank you for taking God's word on healing and making it real. I've been reflecting and praying on your message the past two weeks, and I feel I must share with you the relevancy to my own life. On January 11th of this year at 3.45 p.m., I was in North Memorial Hospital, and I heard these eight words. You are having a heart attack right now. 30 minutes later, at 4.15 p.m., the cardiologist was placing the first stent into my clogged artery. What I'd like to share with you is what occurred during those 30 minutes. I like to refer to it as my awakening, my 30-minute faith journey. Those 30 minutes are like slow motion for me. In fact, I believe God slowed it down for me to ensure I would remember every detail. I've always said that God is capable of doing anything. He is the great I am. I have prayed for healing of others, but it wasn't until it became up close and personal that I fully comprehended the power of God's presence. It was a very subtle and humbling experience. I didn't have a near-death experience. I didn't hear an audible voice. I didn't see angels. It was just a calm feeling that came over me. And I know that calm was the presence of Jesus. Let me go back to those 30 minutes. The day before, I wasn't feeling well and was experiencing some chest discomfort. So I visited a physician, and I was initially diagnosed as having indigestion. But through further conversation, we decided together it might be a good idea to get a stress test to rule out any heart issues. The next day, I arrived at North Memorial, ready to run on the treadmill. See, I've been running for three to five miles a day, three to five times per week for nearly 15 years. So I was really looking forward to a successful test. Upon entering the stress lab, the technician quickly taped all the wire leads to my chest to provide an accurate read of my heart. The technician, while waiting for the cardiologist, performed an EKG to establish a baseline. And as she scanned the chart, I could tell by her body language that something wasn't quite right. Without saying a word, she left the room and seconds later re-entered the room with a cardiologist. The cardiologist shared with me that my EKG had a negative Q value. Later, I understood a negative Q value is the potential heart attack marker. And that they were going to waive my stress test and instead perform a cardio echogram. This is an ultrasound device that can give cardiologists a live image of my heart and its functioning. Everything was moving very fast, and my understanding of what was happening to me was quickly slipping away. It was now 3.44 p.m., and I could tell by the seriousness of the conversation that something bigger than me was going down. It was then that I asked, what's happening? Someone needs to talk to me. You ever been in that kind of situation? Let me in. The cardiologist responded with the words that I will never forget. We are so glad you're here. You are in the right place. We believe you're having a heart attack right now. We will know for sure in 30 minutes, and we will have you fixed within the hour. My mind raced. Heart attack. No, for sure. What does that mean? Surgery. Surgery. What type of surgery? Heart attack. How bad? Will I live? What about my family? Someone needs to call my wife. 
But through all these thoughts, I never panicked. God had already started doing his work. I just didn't recognize it yet. The cardiology staff is very good at this. Somehow I felt like I was a NASCAR driving, pulled into the pit stops to you know, take on four tires, fuel, a wedge adjustment, and all in just 14 seconds. By the time I heard those eight frightening words, in less than 10 sec- minutes, I had called my wife, had an intravenous stent placed in my arm, digested some tasty nitroglycerin, was dressed in a fashionable surgical gown, and propped up on a gurney to be rolled into the surgery room. When I was being lifted over to the surgery table, I then realized the brevity of it all. And I will remember my prayer for the rest of my life. And here's what he said. He said, I'm way over my head, Lord. I know you are the master physician. I know you are in control. I know you love me and want what is best for me. I am turning all this over to you. And it was at this very second that I felt a tremendous calm come over me. No, it wasn't the IV. I wasn't even hooked up yet. I knew that God was in control and that through all this, God was going to redeem the other side of this. I knew no matter what happened, God would deserve the praise and we redeem this negative event in my life and turn it into something wonderful. I was coherent through the entire process. I remember nearly everything, but mostly I remember my resolve. The resolve knowing without a doubt that God was in control. I remember having conversations with the surgeon about her family and her daughters. I remember talking passionately about my family. I remember joking around with the support staff. These conversations were happening while the cardiologist was exploring my heart to insert the life-saving stents. Never in my lifetime have I ever felt such resolve. The master physician was present and enjoying our conversation. I have promised myself that I'm going to do everything I can to give all the honor and praise to the great I am. The first night of recovery, I asked the staff when I would be able to get out of my hospital bed to walk around. They gave me the time of 4 a.m. At 3.59 a.m., I buzzed the nurse to start walking. My recovery is way ahead of schedule. I was running on a treadmill by week four of the heart rehab. I'm back to running two to three miles a day, and I know that my heart is healed. I feel great, and I owe it all to God. I go back on May 14th, so pray for him, to have another echogram. I'm certain that this will show minimal to no damage to my heart. God has already done this thing. He did it back on a cold day in January. I am is intensely personal to me. I am the truth. I am the light, I am the physician, I am the savior, I am the shepherd, and without him I am useless. Kevin, thanks for your continual reminder that our God is a great big God. Oftentimes we place our God into a box and we limit our thinking and our faith of his capabilities. I know for certain he loves me. He is sovereign and he understands my needs better than I do. So keep preaching the important message of our personal God. He is real. He is providing miracles today. Some are big, some are humble. Let's pray. Father, we want to just acknowledge again that you're probably doing things in our life that we don't even see. So help us open our eyes to see those things. And that you're also in this time, God, you're doing, you're doing things so that our hearts will come to a place where we just pray that prayer. It says, God, here's my life. Here it is right now. I want to hear from you. I want to walk with you. 
I want you to point me to true north in my particular circumstance. In Jesus' name, amen.